Okay, well, good evening, everyone. Thank you all so much for joining us on this uh, still chilly <laughs> April evening. We have where I am, we still have snow. I'm sick of snow. <laughs> so I'm excited to talk about something more interesting than snow this evening, which is currencies and banking and the current economic climate and situation. My name is Tanner Naday, if you don't know me. I was the former vice president of economics for the Alberta Prosperity Project before I resigned last fall to pursue uh, more independent endeavors. But I'm so grateful that they've asked me on today uh, to have this discussion and to host this discussion with the CEO of Bow Valley Credit Union, uh, Brett Oland. And so, Brett, if you want to give just a quick introduction to the audience that's that's watching right now, I think they'd appreciate that. Sure. Uh, bringing the band back together, Tanner, really appreciate this. Happy to be here. We did, I think it was about six months ago we did one on currency and had a lot of fun doing it. And so hopefully we can uh, uh, be educational and entertaining at the same time. So that's great. Oh, absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun. And so before Brett begins, I thought I would give just a quick uh, synopsis of the current situation, at least as I understand it in Alberta and Canada at large. What I'm seeing right now is well, we as Albertans and Canadians all across the country and the continent are engaged in this battle for reality. Because on one hand, you have or we have reality itself. I'm wearing this black turtleneck and I live in Alberta. And Brett Oland's the CEO of Bow Valley Credit Union and so on and so on. The sky is blue. But in today's modern society, those are radical things to say. It's radical to talk about the truth. It's radical to talk about um, reality as it actually is. Because, well, because those who are in government and those who are in positions of power themselves are radical. Progressives who run the government are increasingly radicalized. And so everything's flipped upside down. So to speak about things as they are, right side up, is something so foreign in today's society that it packs a punch and it's impactful and it's powerful. And so we have then this battle that we're currently engaged in. You have on one hand, those who want to talk about reality those who want to live in reality. And then on the other hand, you have those who want to disregard reality and actually dominate reality. You have politicians in power who want to do so. You have bankers and a massive uh, industry that wants to get rich quick and as a consequence will engage in foolish and dangerous financial decisions to try and earn a quick dollar or make a quick buck, etc. And it's led to the current situation that we're in right now. We have a government in Ottawa, for example, uh, who wants to create a new reality as they see fit, even though, again, it disregards reality as it is. And then we have individuals like all of you who are here tonight who want to submit to truth, who want to live truthfully. And so we're working our hardest to try and um, spread that message now across the, across the country and across the nations. Now, one of the ways a politician or a government, for example, can control reality, which is what they want to do, is with currency, is with banking, is with economics. And it also means that the currency itself can't control them, right? You have, at least for a little while, although he wasn't an economist, I'm going to talk about C.S. Lewis quickly. C.S. Lewis, this brilliant author, he wrote the Narnia uh, books, wrote an exceptional essay called Willing Slaves of the Welfare State. And in it, he discusses how if government if bureaucracy, if a few central planners have control of economics, they also control the individuals in the nation. His conclusion, Lewis's conclusion, is that if an individual 
loses an abundance of freedom, it's often because he's given up a lot of his economic freedom first. If the government controls economics, say if they're the ones who are, are in control of feeding a family of four, then fewer and fewer Canadians are going to stand up to the unjustified, rebellious, and corrupted actions of the government at large that so flagrantly disregard reality. And it's, it's no stain against the Canadian. He's just trying to feed his family. But if he doesn't do what government says, then government, for example, freezes his bank account or government takes away his welfare check or government does this and that to steer the society in the direction that they want to go. But as I mentioned before, if that's the way government operates, if that's the way big bureaucracy operates, which it is, then they have to be able to control the currency. It means that the currency can't control them. A hammer doesn't use a carpenter. A carpenter uses a hammer. And with that hammer, he builds the structure that he wants to build. In the same way, government uses the tool of monetary policy, of banking, of financials, of uh, economics, of money, to oftentimes create the hideous and oppressive structures that they desire as well. And so in large part, this is exactly why government has such a voracious appetite to keep fiat currency or to introduce digital currency. If government, government needs more money, well, they can simply print some more money because fiat allows them to do so. If they want to tighten everything up, which doesn't happen often because it's usually not politically profitable to do so, then they can turn off the presses. They can basically do whatever they want with this fiat currency in order to steer the society in the direction that they want it to go. And that control might be so much more expanded with a digital currency. And so again, for that reason, I'm so glad to be with Brett tonight. Again, he's the CEO of Bow Valley Credit Union. And uh, he has a couple of points that he wants to talk to all of us about tonight. As he's doing so, he's going to show some slides and, and talk about four specific points, I believe. As he's doing so, if you have questions, there should be a, a little box, a typing box, et cetera, near the bottom of your screen or somewhere where you can type questions and send them in. And then at the end of Brett's presentation, we'll do our best to get through and discuss as many conversations or as many questions as, uh, as we can filter through. So with that, Brett, uh, if you'd like to share your slides, we can start with your presentation on everything you have to offer. Great. Thank you, Tanner. Uh, really appreciate that. Uh, just move up the screen here. Uh, all right. You see the slides all right? I can see them. You bet. I think everyone else can see them too. Great. Well, yeah, thanks very much for that introduction, Tanner. That, that's a, a great segue in, into what we're talking about this evening. And as mentioned, I'm Brett Olund. I'm the CEO of Bow Valley Credit Union. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, uh, I've been in the world of banking for about 20 years, um, and I'm a CPA, a CA by trade. I also have an Institute of Corporate Directors designation, as well as a Bachelor of Commerce from the University of Calgary. Um, so <clears throat> just a little bit of an agenda for tonight, and it's just to give people a better understanding of, of the implications of, of digital banking and sort of what's on the horizon for, for what we see in Canada. And, a lot of these things are, are pretty high level, um, but uh, happy to dive in, Tanner, if you just sort of want to interrupt as, as we, we go along. Uh, so little, I want to talk a little bit about uh, digital banking. That's very much on the forefront. A lot of you people that may have gotten letters from 
TD or Scotiabank lately are, are very familiar what they're they're doing there with digital banking, and I can sort of get into that a little bit. Uh, central bank digital currencies, like you touched on, Tanner. Um, there's some new changes that came with with the new federal budget to FinTrack uh, that that I like to touch on, and then as well as we've seen a lot of um, U.S. banks and European banks blow up lately and i just sort of want to touch on those a little bit because it may be of top of mind of people so when we talk about digital banking here it, there there is a lot of nuance uh, and and when i'm talking about digital banking i'm not talking about a central bank digital currency because there there is a significant difference um, so forbes defines digital banking as basically just the ability to do banking online or or through a mobile phone um, so here's a, a, a very rudimentary model of, of what it is. And so you see at the bottom there, there's the banking system. Um, and if you think of this as basically just a, a bit of an elaborate ledger, and, and it just keeps track of dates and times and, and who owes what to who. And, and it's basically just a big accounting ledger and all it is. Um, these banking systems, especially in Canada, are archaic. Uh, for example, RBC's banking system is well over 50 years old. It might even be 60 years old now. So it's, it's, it's quite an archaic piece of software. Um, and it doesn't really need to be updated all that often because all it is is really keeping track of transactions that are happening day-to-day. Uh, -day. So it doesn't need to be very robust. Um, the part uh, that... Uh, allows it to talk to the general public or you is this digital banking platform, this piece that basically sits on top of the banking system and talks back and forth to the banking system. And since the banking system doesn't interface very well uh, with people, it, they, they've created this layer of, of digital banking um, to basically communicate and, and talk back and forth and, and serve as a bit of an intermediary between two parties. So in, inherently, there's nothing really nefarious about digital banking, but it, it, it's actually what they do with it. And so when they do things like talk to you, the government or other third parties about what you're doing within digital banking, I think of that as, as a bit of the nefarious part. So by itself, it's, it's, you know, uh, nothing's wrong with it, but as they sort of push it outwards to other uh, organizations, that's where I see the problem being coming up. So I'm going to pick on TD tonight because we, we've had a lot of interactions with people that, uh, you know, TD is forcing them to find, uh, to sign a digital banking agreement, um, terms and conditions. And, and basically, people feel a lot like uh, they're signing their life away with these things. Um, so I, I read through the terms and conditions. It was available on the web for, for TD. Uh, and, and I think people are rightly so uh, getting the hairs up on the back of their neck because some of the stuff is, is pretty scary that they're putting in there. Um, some of the stuff uh, you have the ability to turn off, so, such as location sharing or push notifications or even biometrics, which is like fingerprint and, and facial recognition. So you can actually turn those things off and, and so at least you have some control over that. But some of the things that you can't turn off within these terms and uh, conditions is the collection 
and the use and disclosure of, of personal information. And, and basically, they, they cite it as basically being their information once you put it in there. Um, and they share this information with TD's worldwide affiliates. And I was, when I was doing this uh, presentation this morning, my, my brain went right to the World Economic Forum. And I wondered if TD uh, had a relationship with the World Economic Forum. And so sure enough, here's a screenshot of uh, the World Economic Forum's website and there's TD Bank Group. Um, and so that's exactly the type of affiliates that they're talking about in the terms and conditions that they're sharing your information with. And I don't know about you, but I don't love the idea of, of sharing my personal information with Klaus Schwab. Um, also in the terms and conditions, um, you know, they can effectively make changes to the agreement at any time regarding your privacy, ownership and terms. And, and basically, they don't have to really forewarn you as, as a result of that. So rightly so, people are pretty upset about what TD is doing with, with their digital banking. Um, and, and we've tried to fill that gap because we're really not interested in, in uh, any of this, this business about sharing people's information outside of our organization, we consider your privacy private. Um, and so we're trying to push back to some degree on, on all this nonsense where, where basically your information is, is a commodity that's, that's being shared ac across uh, a number of different platforms. So Tanner, I'm not sure if you had any questions regarding specifically digital banking, but I can move into central bank digital currencies next if you're all right with that. Sure, that's perfect. I liked what you said about how, as far as I understand it, technology is neither immoral nor, mor nor moral. It simply is. And it's all dependent on the way the individual or the organization uses that technology that determines, um, yeah, the future of the society. And so when you were talking about how on its own, there's nothing wrong with digital banking. I like that because I agree. It's just the way that these individuals and organizations and groups seem to be using it. It immediately becomes nefarious. So I thought that was a worthwhile point. So, yeah, if you want to keep going, give her. No, absolutely. Um, and so that leads very much into a central bank digital currency. So the, the digital banking and the central bank digital currency are actually completely different things. But you can sort of see those stepping stones towards a central bank digital currency on what they're sort of suggesting there with the terms and conditions and basically trying to control your life through your finances. So now into, into a central bank digital currency. And so this is right from the Bank of Canada's website. And they, they just suggest that simply put, a central bank digital currency is digital money issued by a central bank. Um, again, nothing really nefarious about that. But the key difference between what we have today and what the world, the, the worst world possible with the central bank digital currency is the difference between where the liabilities sit. So Tanner, if, if you had $100 and, and you deposited it into a financial institution, it's basically your asset of, of $100, but it's also the liability of the organization that you deposited into. So that's what I mean when it's a liability of the organization. So the key difference is, is there's a liability of the commercial banking sector, like a TD or a Bow Valley Credit Union or an RBC. Um, but with the central bank digital currency, your deposit becomes a liability of the central bank. And I'll, I'll just try and describe this a little bit better. 
here. So you can see there that dot in black, that's the Central Bank of Canada. And you have your, your financial institution, which is, you know, your BMOs, your TDs, your RBCs, the Bow Valley Credit Unions of the world. Um, and if you think of the Central Bank of Canada as basically the house of um, finances for the country of Canada. Um, and they also are connected, but they're not um, one with the treasury of, of, the, of Canada. And so if you want to think of the treasury as basically the checking account of, of the government of Canada. Um, so there's, there's a reason why they're distinctly separate, and that's because they're supposed to make uh, decisions independent of each other. So therefore, the Central Bank of Canada shouldn't care about politics, uh, especially around something like inflation or something like that. Their mandate is to basically keep a stable financial system, and that includes keeping inflation under control. Uh, they're not supposed to get involved with politics and, and basically pandering to, to uh, politicians, which I think we've sort of changed over the little last little while. Basically, the, the government's piggy bank is that treasury, and that's where they're supposed to do their spending. And so the, it's, it's not new, something like a central bank digital currency, um, where they've wanted to control finances. But inevitably throughout, you know, thousands of years of banking history, they've discovered that that's a bad idea. And I'll tell you why. Um, when you have an intermediary, like a, a financial institution set up between the central bank and the government and, and you, basically, I care about profit and loss within my organization. RBC cares about profit and loss in their organization. If the finances go directly through the central bank of Canada, then what does the government care? They don't care about profit and loss. They don't care about, you know, balancing the books. All they care about is their, their programs. And so inherently it's, it's very troublesome that they even want to go down this road. But let me ask you this question, Tanner. How do you know that there isn't a central bank digital currency right now? Ah, well, for, before I answer, I would say just I liked your comment about profit and loss insofar as um, in economics, we talk about how important profit is. You know, socialists tend to make it out to be this big, bad, evil thing, but it's really not. All profit does is give you, for example, at Bow Valley or me working at my job, a signal. It tells me that I'm doing something right, or if I'm losing money, that I'm doing something wrong. And if I'm doing something right, if I am making profit, it means that I'm able to, that I'm helping society, that I'm bettering society as a whole, because they're paying me to do something which they find valuable. And so I completely agree, firstly, about your point that um, profit is so important in any private sector, let alone the banking sector. And so if you did have a currency that was regulated by the government, um, not well, not regulated, but if you had a banking system like that, totally regulated by the government who doesn't care about profit, but instead cares about votes and cares about power, mm -hmm. uh, you would see demonstrable inefficiencies and dangerous control. So I totally agree with that. And then with regards to, I suppose, your central bank, how do we know that we're not under a, a central bank digital currency um, um, right now? I suppose first I would say, of course, most of our banking already is 
rather digital. It is just numbers on a screen. But at any rate, I suppose I would say I can pull out cash. I can use paper cash to go and make transactions. I can do so at least as best as I understand it with relative uh, anonymity. Um, I can pay if I wanted to under the table for something. If I wanted to make a trade on Kijiji, I could do that with those things without having to log into a computer and scan my finger, my hand or my fingerprint to see if I'm able to pull out these dollars from this regulated bank. Yep. No, and, and you're absolutely right. And so, but if you look sort of at the top of the screen there, if between the Treasury and the Central Bank of Canada, we really have no way of knowing whether they're basically just typing numbers into a screen and creating currency. But this ties very nicely into your other comments of when, when you have to have a profit and loss and, and basically you feel pain if you don't have that profit or loss. The same thing happens in society. So I don't think it's any surprise that we're seeing increased crime. We're seeing increased drug abuse. We're seeing increased homelessness. We're, we're seeing 35-year-olds live in their parents' basements. We're, we, you know, we're seeing people lack of satisfaction in life, unable, unable to afford housing. Like This is all the result of basically what I term malinvestment in society that the government's been doing really ramped up over the last 10 or 15 years. So you're, you're absolutely right. Yes. Oh, and, you know, you even look at, oh, how many false signals that have come from government, for example, for handing out all of this money. They've told all of these enterprises, these businesses, these tech startups over the last how many years that it's time to invest and it's time to really, you know, um, make a go of your new product, even though all of it really was built on sand. The wealth that was created wasn't really wealth at all. Instead, it was printed money from the government that's been um, floated into the economy. And now that that money is drying up, and now that people are in a pinch due to inflation or interest rates or what might have you, they're not so flagrantly spending on things they otherwise were two years ago. And now those new startups and those new businesses are drying up and drying up very quickly. I don't know if you saw, but even even McDonald's, they closed their their uh, top headquarters for a while because they're tight. They're, they're in trouble too. And so it's it's across the economy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I term that all that sort of showing up within general society, I call that price truth. Mm. And, and that's basically the exposure of all this money printing coming home to roost yes. is really what it is. Yes. So, um, so just a little bit back to this in the most nefarious form, like so with this model that's on your screen right now, you mm -hmm. there may be a central bank digital currency sort of at the higher levels, but you're right, you wouldn't see it at your financial institution and your level. So what inherently a central bank digital currency is, is you would deal directly with the central bank of Canada. So again, back to your liabilities, it would be a liability of the central bank of Canada. And this is where the really nefarious stuff can come in. So. I'm sure we've heard these stories before of basically the, they can turn off your bank accounts on a whim. You could be taxed daily if, if they wanted to. They could put time limits on your money and basically say, you need to spend this by the end of the week. Otherwise, uh, it disappears because we need to ramp up things in the economy because we might go into a recession. Um, you might see things if, if the technology is there enough to basically dictate you've spent too much money on 
your carbon footprint this month. You can't buy a tank of gas. You have to buy a head of lettuce instead of you, you're buying a, a steak or something like that. So you can see where this path goes if, if you allow them to. And something really, uh, I think, would, would uh, be, be very scary product was if, if they ever merged basically the central bank with the treasury. And so they've, they've even talked about this in the U.S. at some points. But that's, that's the worst of both worlds. So basically, that's um, the checking account and the equity of the House of Canada merged into one. So the government would have complete control of, of basically the finances of Canada. And so I think it's important to note, uh, Tanner, that this, in my mind, is, is a number of years off. Um, it's, it's, I don't think it's any surprise that um, these, these group of central dictators, these central planners are quite arrogant. Um, they think they can snap their fingers and come up with a central bank digital currency and it's gonna work seamlessly. And, and just to give you a highlight of, of how I think that's, that's inherently incorrect, um, Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba credit union systems have been trying to uh, streamline our payments process. So I'm talking about wires, checks, uh, e-transfers, AFTs, EFTs, um, and, and we've been working at it for the better part of six years and spent over $200 million on it. And so that's just one piece of, of banking. So if you can imagine trying to broaden that scope to the entire, entire country of Canada and touch all aspects of it, it's going to take billions and billions of dollars, and I think they're years and years away from it. So I think there's a bit of comfort in understanding that, but back to the earlier message with, with TD, that is definitely a step towards something like this where, where it is uh, taking away your freedoms and controls. So, Right. I know GK Chesterton has this great quote where he says, the best way to resist a tyranny, or in this case, a central bank digital currency, is to resist it before it exists. And so I think the sooner you can hop on something like this, as we are now, um, the more effective and the greater the opportunity the nation has itself of ever of stopping its imposition. That to me seems to be a much more um, desirable outcome, you know, than than um, actually having it imposed and then trying to get rid of it down the line. That would be much more difficult, I think, if not impossible. And I also remind the audience, again, if you have questions, keep asking them. We're getting a lot in. It's great. We'll ask them at the end. So just type them in the box below. And um, yeah, as you you listen to Brett and, and you like something he has to say or has a question, just ask it and we'll do our best to get through um, all of them at the end. So with that in mind, okay. with the treasury, maybe if you could just clarify. So you have a central bank here in Canada and we have a treasury. So basically um, uh, the treasury itself is uh, how government or where government gets the money to pay for its services in essence. And then if it needs more money, it goes to the central bank. So, yes. Well, well, yes and no. Okay, so the, the way it works is the Treasury is actually basically, like I said, the checking uh, account right. of, of the government. So they take in tax receipts right. and they, they spend it out on, on government programs. But what we've seen, especially in the Western world these days, is they spend beyond their means, right? right. <laughs> sure. So 
in 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 the U.S. alone, I think they expect it to be about two trillion dollars this year. Um, so they need to be able to get the money from somewhere. So what they do is sell Treasury bills or T T bills mm-hmm. or or bonds mm-hmm. out into the greater economy. And so if if I was the Treasury and I sold you a hundred dollar T bill, I'd take your hundred dollar T bill and you'd take this this Treasury bond right. in, into uh, your your possession, and that's your asset. And so that's basically how they fund the shortfall. But now they're running to, at, to the end of the rope with something like that. So, for example, with inflation running hot, say yesterday I sold you a $100 T-bill, and I the, the rate of interest I was going to pay for you on it was 5%. And then Today, I go to you again, you know, Tanner, I need $100 again. Do you, you want to buy one of these T-bills? And you go, mm, I don't really like the way things are going. So, no, I'm not interested in, you know, taking on that T-bill for uh, 5%. But then I, I basically, they have, the governments have to fill the void. So they, they scramble. And, and basically, I would go to you, Tanner, would you take this $100 T-bill, but I'll give you 10%. And you'll go, yeah, maybe I'll take that. And so what you see happening in society today is those yields is what they're called on those bonds are rising. Um, But then when the yields get too high, basically the treasury has to pay those back. And so you get into a place where the interest price on those bonds is a very big portion of your expenses in the treasury. So what the central bank does is it goes into the market and buys those bonds. So Whereas you're hesitant to say, eh, I'm not interested in buying that bond unless it's at 10%. The central bank rushes in and buys it and at that 5%, so to keep the yield suppressed. So this, that's exactly what quantitative easing is, is buying those treasuries to keep the price of the yield down. Right, right. Which I suppose then is why you would see, with regards to quantitative easing, inflation in the bigger asset markets first, and maybe not so much in the smaller ones. Correct. So you're, you'll only see inflation if, if it gets out into the real economy. And, and why we're getting so beat up by inflation right now is because the Treasury threw all that money out into the real economy. So that's the big difference between 2008 and, and 2020 is in 2008, after the great financial crisis, it was basically the money was contained within the central banks and the financial institutions, and it didn't get out into the real economy. But as soon as basically they around, announced all these government programs, the, the quantitative easing got out into the real economy and it shows up as inflation. Right, right. No, it's good information. So if you want to keep going, give her. We've got a lot of questions coming in. It's great. Keep them coming. And uh, on to FinTrack. Sure, yeah. So FinTrack, this is just announced last week, some changes that, that are just summarized. And, and so if, if you're not aware, FinTrack was the main tool that uh, the, the government used to basically suppress the Freedom Trucker Convoy and, and suggested this was the vehicle that they used. And, and it started back in, in, uh, after 9-11, so about 23 years ago. They came up with this, of course, for our safety and soundness to try and protect us against those nasty terrorists. Um, it's it's a very blunt instrument, is what it is. And and what they've recently announced is basically to 
that turn that blunt instrument into a bit of a scalpel. Um, and, and so they're throwing a bunch of money at this, this FinTrack program this, in this year's budget. And these are some of the things that they're, they're going to do. And of course, it's always about our, our safety and soundness. Um, so they're, they're using it to strengthen uh, investigation and enforcement in, in information sharing tools within Canada's uh, at, uh, um, asset management liability system. And, and these legislation changes will be to give law enforcement uh, ability to freeze and seize virtual assets, information uh, sharing between law enforcement, CRA, and FinTrack, introduce uh, new offensive structures for financial transactions trying to avoid FinTrack, strengthening the reg uh, registration framework, uh, criminalizing some operations. And, and probably one of the, the scariest things that they're doing is when, when they say something like establish powers for FinTrack to disseminate strategic analysis related to financial financing of threats to the safety of Canada, what they're talking about there is AI. So they're actually creating AI bots right within the FinTrack system. And, and as I mentioned before, FinTrack is a fairly blunt instrument. And so it's been around for about 23 years and I don't think there's any recorded, um, you know, charges being laid or, or arrests being made as a result of FinTrack. So they've had all this information for years and years and years but haven't really been able to do anything with it, with a blunt instrument. But if, if they tie it to the horsepower of uh, artificial intelligence, that's, that's a very different tool that they have in their possession. And so a, a few other things uh, in the financial sector that they're taking a look at, all you know, under the rouge of, of safety and security of Canadians, but we, we know the real game, that they're basically trying to, to grab up power. Um, so they're, they're talking about refinements to the Bank Act, the Insurance Act, the Loan and Trust Act, Officer Superintendent of Financial Institutions. And again, that, that bottom one basically has to do with FinTrack. And they, they're calling it to modernize the federal financial system to address emerging risks, their words, not mine, of the financial sector. So some of these changes that they're doing, expanding the mandate of OSFI, which, which was the one that ultimately controls a FinTrack, and as well as, they, they're as bold as basically OSFI can take control of, of a federally regulated financial institution. So um, very, very scary stuff. And they're, they're also giving additional powers to the Minister of Finance and the Director of FinTrack to sort of uh, get these, these security threats under control within Canada. So, some very scary stuff, but I, I think it's important that you understand that, that we can get away with from this to some degree. Um, we can start talking to our local politicians and tell them that they, we don't want to be spied on by FinTrack. Um, you know, that was a big portion of what Daniel Smith was trying to do with the Alberta Sovereignty Within Canada Act is, is uh, also create an, an Alberta Bank Act and, and revise the, the Alberta Credit Union Act so they can basically step away from the feds on what they're trying to do with uh, FinTrack because it, it is a, a legislation that we have to follow, but we need to be able to try and get some tools to try and get out from underneath it. Um, also, uh, join a local credit union. Credit unions aren't regulated by OSFI where most of these tools are coming down. We're regulated by the Credit Union Deposit Guarantee Corporation. So although we still have to 
listen to the law with with FinTrack, um, you know, we find that one more step away from OSPI is, is always a good thing because OSPI is the one that, that mandated that uh, financial institutions have all their employees uh, vaccinated as, as well as uh, really had no objection to freezing people's accounts uh, during the Freedom Convoy. Um, and whereas the Credit Union Deposit Guarantee Corporation is regulated by Albertans, for Albertans, and uh, the federal government has no jurisdiction other than FinTrack, which, which is a, a bit of an Achilles heel that we need to, to rectify as soon as we can. Right. So, sorry, so credit unions are not under OSFI, but they are under FinTrack. Yes, that's correct. Right. So right. FinTrack is nationwide. And so, mm -hmm. again, that it's, it's a very blunt instrument, but they're trying to sharpen it up is, is what they're doing. So. Right. And always under safety and control. It's, <laughs> they always love safety. It's the funniest thing. You know, when you look through history, even now, it's the strangest thing because for the whole of history, things like um, this subjective level of safety and security in and of themselves aren't moral goods. They're not um, self-evidently moral, like thou shall not murder is self-evidently moral. And yet government using these this tool of safety and security acts like a bulldozer and works their hardest to impose these things, which will otherwise restrict and limit our freedom to a demonstrable degree. But it's really a brilliant strategy because it's so difficult, at least on the surface, to argue against safety and security because it invokes a, a pathos, an emotion that says, if you do argue against it, well, you must hate safety and you must hate security and you must not care about your fellow man. But of course, um, it's a lie. That's false. It's just that we believe the more appropriate way, the more effective way to actually guarantee a man's safety is to give him freedom first. And then the safety will follow. The vice versa um, doesn't hold true. And that's always the way it works. And, and is, if you opt into that safety, basically you have a sacrifice that you're giving up control over your life. And that's I just want to step back a little bit. Because people often say, well, Brett, you know, you're being hyperbolic. The, the Canadian banks will never allow this to happen, where they're basically going to allow a central bank digital currency to happen. Now, if inflation runs hot for the next number of years and people are absolutely just being decimated out there, they can't put food on the table. They can't, um, you know, get a roof over their heads. They can't get a job, whatever the case may be. The general population might go to the governments and beg them to fix a problem and they'll come up and say i've got a solution for you it's a central bank digital currency it'll be great i'll deposit money right into your account you don't need to think about it i've got you and so again that safety net is is basically taking away those freedoms and so it's a it's a bit of a trap as as, as you know Right. Now, just before we move on, I'm just going to ask this one question that I saw come in. It's a good one. And I think it works if you if you could answer it right now. Um, Barbara asks, she goes, Brett, so are you saying that if Danielle Smith revises or creates an Alberta Banking Act and the Credit Union Act, then you'll be able to get away from FinTrack? Is that what you're saying? That's the hope. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we can come up with our own controls of, of basically how you know, I admit that there's bad people out there and we probably want to freeze their accounts. But the thing is, if it's, if it's a peaceful trucker protest, I don't know if I agree with that. But, you know, if, it, if it's somebody that's going to uh, 
bomb a building or something like that, maybe that's legitimate. But the thing is, it's that that overreach where Albertans need to be in control of this. It, it shouldn't be Ottawa. Right, right. That yeah, makes total sense. The more decentralized the power, the better. Oh, <laughs> almost invariably. So if you want to keep going, the discussion's great. I think we got so one more point. One or two sure, more. Sure. Yeah. So one more going, point. Yeah. That's quite quite short. And and you know this this came out of and a lot of people uh, were concerned with this, especially within our our organization. You know, we, they saw Silicon Valley uh, blowing up in California there, uh, Signature Bank, and then it sort of it it manifested itself over to Credit Suisse, which is a very big, very long standing bank in Europe. Uh, Deutsche Bank also is, is having some trouble. So I, people have been asking the questions, are, are my deposits safe? And I, and I created this little chart to sort of help put people at ease and, and, and show you the, actually the power of the credit union system, um, even compared to, to uh, Schedule 1 banks. So um, each one, you know, each schedule bank, so your BMOs, your RBCs, your CIBCs, that type of thing, they, they fall under what's called the Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation. Um, and so all credit unions and banks hold what's called either statutory liquidity or bank receivers. And so basically that's your first line of defense. If, if there's something that goes wrong, there's a bit of a run on liquidity, then we tap into these reserves that we have to, to basically... Um, keep up with the liquidity that people want to pull out of the bank, and which is exactly what happened at these other banks. Um, CDIC insurance is only up to $100,000. There's, there's ways to work around it for some degree. But if, if you had a million dollars in an RBC and you only had the one level of CDI insurance, CDIC insurance, you're only insured for $100,000. So that $900,000 that, that you thought was safe and sound in the bank is gone. Um, with Alberta credit unions, you actually have a hundred percent deposit guarantee. So no matter if you have a, a million, 10 million, 50 million in, in the bank, it's all protected under the credit union deposit guarantee corporation. And we at Bow Valley credit union took it even a, a level even further. And we wanted to basically back our, our capital and our equity, uh, with a hard asset, um, within our organization. And if you look at the root of the problem of, of the Credit Suisse or the Silicon Valley Bank, it was capital that was the problem. And so we're, we're working with the regulators right now. We're, we're talking about it back and forth. They, they sort of don't love the, the idea, but I, I think ultimately we will be successful. But we've, we've coined this phrase of, of gold backed for our organization. And so we actually have physical precious metals within our stores at Bow Valley Credit Union, and it makes us a very unique organization. There's nobody else in Canada that's doing this. Um, you could do it with other assets, which we may look into, such as farmland or commodities, um, uh, something else like that. That, that makes it really interesting. But we wanted something tangible that people could really uh, latch on to. People understand gold. They understand that it's been an inflation hedge for, for thousands of years. It's been around for thousands of years. And, and effectively, it, it's what all currencies revert to at the end of the day. So I, I think it's important for people to understand where they are protected and where there's a bit of risk within um, organizations. And I'm not suggesting 
that there's there's going to be a bank run in Canada at all tomorrow. I think we've, we've got some of the most sound financial systems in the world. But the thing is, it is a probability and whatever the, the, the height of that probability is, I think it's important for people to consider. Right, right. Yeah, and I'd say so. Obviously, I don't work for Bow Valley and I don't work for APP. I'm just this independent economist, but I do like gold. <laughs> I like <laughs> I like gold a lot. And if it were up to me, you know, then I would say, well, I think Alberta should get on a gold standard and um, a new school gold standard. But at any rate, um, well, that was excellent. That was an excellent presentation as usual. It was filled with information and uh, exciting information, especially for me as an economist, I have to say. Um, it was informative. And so if uh, in the audience you're watching, and you have questions for Brett or myself or both of us, what might have you, just keep asking them. Um, they're going to start coming up on the screen. I have a whole bunch here in the chat. And so we're going to try and get through as many as possible. We're going to have a fun discussion, which you might not have known was possible with economics, but <laughs> I promise it is. And so, um, oh, we're going to have some fun. So the first question here from Kathy, she says, why are, all, are not all credit unions backed with gold like yours, like Bow Valley Credit Union? It's a good question. Because it's not easy, Kathy. Mm. <laughs> it's it's taken us the better part of three years to get to this place, and we're we're still having conversations with our regulator around it. Because if you look um, under IFRS standards, which are like the general accepted accounting standards with Canada, they don't know what to do with it. And we we look at the Credit Union Act, and it's not touched on. And we look at the credit union regulations, and it's not touched on. So it's, it's one of these things that's it's a bit of a relic that I think is, is a bit of a, a solution to, to a lot of the world's problems, because if you actually have a tether of something like a tangible asset that, that basically forces you into um, financial prudency, you can't get away from like all this malinvestment or, or all this money or currency printing that they've done over the last number of years. So I think it's an excellent solution. And, and altruistically, we're hoping that more credit unions across Canada start taking up this charge as well, because um, people are voting with their feet. They understand safety and security. They're, they're coming to us in groves. And we can't help people that are outside of our province, unfortunately, because we're only regulated to uh, operate within Alberta. So... Right, right. And I'd agree with that. Yeah. Um, next question. Any advice about what to do with the money we have in one of the five big banks here in Canada? Should we withdraw, leave it, invest it in stocks, bonds, gold and silver, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. So if, if it's under your $100,000 mark, I, I have no doubt in my mind that, that you're going to get paid back if, if that's the case. Um, part of the challenge is there's... Even with CDIC, they only have enough for about a percent of in half of all the deposits that if, if everything went sideways. So naturally what they do is they would turn to the Bank of Canada and basically get them to print. And so meanwhile, while you're waiting to get your deposits, my fear is that if they do all this trillions and trillions of dollar money printing, that inflation is just going to absolutely take off. So... I think it's important to understand that your, your levels of insurance at, at each organization. Um, if, if you're investing in stocks, although I'm not a financial planner, I advise you to sort of go talk to your financial planner. There's no insurance for, for stocks. If the stock market crashes, um, 
that's your your tough luck. Um, there is insurance if, if you're with a broker and you have cash in your brokerage, there's insurance for that. Um, and, and I think it's important not to get hyperbolic with something like this. Like, don't take all your money and invest it into precious metals and gold and silver and things like that. That's not what I'm proposing. A little goes a very, very long way, especially with what we're talking about here. Um, you know, the, the general sound advice is, depending on your economic circumstances, again, uh, talk to your financial advisor, but uh, gold and silver at 5 or 10% of your portfolio would be just fine to do, to do very well. Um, bonds, be careful with long-dated bonds, because if you lock into a long-dated bond, say like 10 years or something like that, and the interest rate is not bad right now. You'd probably get four and a half or five percent on a long dated bond. But what happens if the inflation gets hot again? What if it's running at 10 percent, 15 percent? All of a sudden you're wiping out your real buying power and you're stuck. So my recommendation for that is to stick to shorter term um, GICs or bonds that, that mature, you know, one, two, three years where, where you can actually reprice. Um, to a place where um, it's it's actually you're you're keeping up with inflation, if you will, if if things change in the world. Right, right. Just just a quick one from me. You think the uh, you think the numbers coming out of the government that talk about inflation, like the CPI, do you think that's an accurate measure of inflation, or do you think it's underreported? Absolutely underreported. And there's yeah. if if anybody's interested, there's a website they can go to called shadowstats.com, uh, and, it, and it's U.S. based, and they've been tracking it for about 50 years about what the inflation measures are 50 years ago and what they are are now, and so if you actually had the same measures that you had 50 years ago, inflation over the past couple of years would have been running at 15. 17 18 percent whereas they're reporting it at you know six seven eight percent so it's and it allows them to do a number of things they don't have to pay out um you know for something like cpp it's it's linked to inflation level so the higher the inflation level the higher the government actually has to pay out and so it, it, it basically you get squeezed there as well as tax brackets and things like that. It, it's, it's to their benefit that inflation's running hot and they keep those tax brackets in the same level. So there, there's like a number of incentives for them to showcase that inflation is sh- slow or lower than it actually is. Um, and, and effectively, it's, it's the same organization that produces those inflation reports that actually measures the inflation. So it's, it's like the chicken guarding the head nose. Right. Maybe a bit of a conflict of interest. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You figure. Um, here's a good one. Okay. So could the government force you, the Bow Valley Credit Union, to freeze funds of customers? Uh, so you can read between the lines some degree with this. Um, and I'll, I'll just tell you anecdotally. Um, during the trucker convoy, we didn't freeze anybody's accounts. Um, we heard the emergencies act order it's the same time as everybody but we wanted to go hey wait a minute we want to figure out what this exactly means and and we actually didn't even get direction from osfi or fintrack to do something like this it was it was absolutely baffling that atb 
RBC, all these big banks just jumped on the bandwagon and decided to start freezing people's accounts. You know, whether they you know, contributed $5, $25, oh, you might be related to a family member, who knows? Oh, you were buying a jerry can and you were going to fill it full of water, that type of thing. It, it was just baffling to me. So if this ever came up again, we would be very thoughtful and we would take a look at every single individual circumstance um, and and see what we could do because we work for our membership. We don't work for the government and their their uh, political agendas. Um, it's it's important to note if the RCMP came to the door, had a proper court order, and said, you know what, this Tanner guy, he he bought a jerry can and he filled it full of water and he was marching around in Ottawa. We wanted you to freeze his accounts. There's not much we can do, and that's why we need an Alberta Bank Act and a, and a revision to the Alberta Credit Union Act so we can get out from underneath of this. Right. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Again, the less power that a central authority has, particularly with something so influential as money and banking, um, the better in the interest of, of freedom. Now, I'm wondering, Laurie asks, is Bow Valley a gold-based bank? So maybe if you could just describe how Bow Valley Credit Union works with gold. Like, for example, do you have... Um, 100% reserve ratio or things along that line. How exactly does, does the gold commodity work with your bank? So we're, we're effectively trying to straddle the fence between two different worlds, the, the hard asset money world and the fiat world, and, and be, be able to sort of help people transact in both. Um, you can't back 100% of your deposits with gold. Otherwise, you have no fiat currency. So like I, I have staff to pay. I have building costs heating computer systems things to pay for type thing and that's all done in fiat cash so we, we actually have to have profit in fiat and so we're, we're working on this again with our regulator and and we're, we're haven't come to a conclusion quite yet but stay tuned on this and and we're we're trying to get to a place where we'd like to be able to back up our equity completely with uh financial and basically what it is is a reserve of, of gold um, that we have. Um, and it doesn't necessarily need to be gold. Interestingly enough, uh, one of the most successful banks in U.S. history was owned by Benjamin Franklin, and he backed it up with farmland. And so really interesting case, something that we could look at doing here. Um, but for, for our, our purposes, gold seems like the best solution. And, and once again, we, we need to work through this and, and we'll get more details out to people on this um, as, as we sort of get to the, the finish line. So, Right. Um, John, John asks, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin? I like that question. Uh, I like Bitcoin. I do have a little bit of it. Um, my, my probably biggest issue with it, you know, and, and both gold and Bitcoin have sort of their pros and cons. They're working really hard to snuff out those on and off ramps for cryptocurrencies. Um, some argued and put on your tinfoil hats for this, that that's why they went after Signature Bank and, and Silicon Valley Bank is because they catered to the cryptocurrency. Um, so if you can't get on or off the uh, into fiat currency, I'm not sure what good it does you. Um, but again, you know, the, the pro is that you can go halfway around the world and, and basically understand 
a word sequence and, and bring your money with you as long as you can get it off ramped. Um, same thing with, with precious metals. Um, physically, you have to take them with you. You might not get through border crossings, that type of thing. So each one of them has their challenges. Each one of them has their plus, but at the end of the day, I own both. So, Right, right. Um, it's a good one. Uh, next one here. Um, with the increased interest in your credit union in Bow Valley, do you plan to open any more branches throughout the province? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're, we're looking at models, and, and of course, there's a lot of interest on in, in what we're doing just because of our stance on, on basically the world in general and, and how we've acted over the last couple of years compared to some of the other financial institutions. Um, we're working with a number of groups and, and so to make a branch viable, like a full service, full branch, big branch, you're paying for staff, buildings, ITs, infrastructure and that type of thing. It takes about 50 or 40 million in deposits. And so what we do is we take those deposits, we put them into loans or investments type that and, and make a return on them and that in, in turn makes a profit. So we probably could put a couple of desks and a computer and, and like a cash machine in locations for 10 million in, in deposits if we had that type of money. Um, it, so, it, so it is possible and, and we do have plans for expansion and, and it's just we're, we're hoping to do a bit of a pilot project fairly quickly on something like this. So, Right. Oh, exciting. Because, yeah, it's again, I can't endorse them highly enough. Here's a good one. I like this question. Do you think, well, you know, I'll put it in two parts. Do you think the U.S. dollar is going to be replaced, like as the world's reserve currency? you think it's losing power? Uh, yes, eventually. But I think it'll take a long time. How um, long? Decades. Okay. Um, mm. So we, we've probably seen a lot in the news lately uh, about the BRICS nations um, moving away from the U.S. currency. Um in about 20 years ago, 70% of the worldwide transactions were done in the U.S. currency. Right now, it's about 59, 58% of the world's transactions. So that's still a big chunk of, of the world's transactions in the U.S. currency. Um, funny things happen when you get below 50%, though. So I, I may be surprised, but it's taken 20 years to get below, you know, reduce 11%. Um, it, it may be a lot faster, um, but, but I would still guess it, it'll take decades. Um, right. You know, and, and it's not, the, the U.S. will fight back against this as well. It's not like, well, we're, you know, we lost it. Sorry, guys. They're, they're <laughs> going to come up with some idea how to, how to correct this type thing. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean the end of the world. Um, this happened just as recently as, in the 40s, Britain used to be the world reserve currency. Um, the, the pound sterling used to be the world reserve currency. Right. It lost it. Um, it happens. Um, and and you have to be careful that it, it, it doesn't mean the end of the world. So Right. Yeah, I'd agree. Like, I have no problem with the dollar not, you know, no longer being the reserve currency of the world. You know, like, yeah, I see at least at least in the, in the yeah, the short term here. I don't see any massive implication except a change in geopolitics. But that's a good question. But so what about BRICS? What are your thoughts on BRICS? I mean, there's a lot of questions just generally about it. What are your thoughts on it? Uh, what do you think will happen because of it, et cetera, et cetera? 
Yeah, it leads in quite well with, with the last comment. So typically what the U.S. does is it has what's called the U.S. dollar wrecking ball. And so what it does is it raises rates and it crashes everybody's currency around it. And, and basically these BRIC nations are, are, are sick of this happening. And so the, the ultimate commodity is, is energy that people need to buy. So you'll because the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency and they price oil and gas in us dollars that's why i think it's going to be around for a while but these BRICS nations have started trading especially with saudi arabia uh in in their own currencies so it's not like saudi arabia said no we're not taking us dollars anymore it's just like no we're we're willing take to take yuan we're willing willing to take rupees and, and things like that. Um, and so it, it definitely reduces its dominance. But back to what are they going to settle these all these currencies in? Because the thing is, it, it's not unusual for different countries to not trust other countries' currency because other countries are doing the same thing with their fiat currency. So ultimately, I'm taking a bet that they're going to have to settle these in, in gold. Um, so yet another sort of base case of why I think it's important to hold it. Right. Oh, if like, I would love it if Alberta would, if Alberta could, you know, be paid among other things for our oil in gold. I think that'd be excellent personally, but cause we, so of course here in Canada, um, we've sold off most of our gold. I think we have a couple dozen ounces left with the central bank. Um, at least that's as far as I know. And I've heard no change in that matter. Right. Is that correct? Yeah, Bow Valley Credit Union in their stores holds more gold than the Bank of Canada. <laughs> and that, I don't think that needs a comment well. either. There you have it. Yeah. Um, and we've seen such incredible uptake with, with this initiative, and it's not even completely flushed out yet. If Alberta was to do something like back our organ, our financial institutions, all of them I'm talking about, so all the credit unions, ATB, and, and, and basically mandated that they needed to have 20% gold reserves in, in their stores. The capital inflows to Alberta would be staggering, just staggering. People from around the world would absolutely rush to invest in Alberta. And I think there's an incredible amount of economic horsepower that could result just from this this relatively simple change within our financial system. Right. Um, Leanne asks a good question. Um, she asks, why not use oil and gas as a backing? So I say maybe, well, oil and gas is a bit more volatile, perhaps. Um, at least in economics, we like, I like stability, you know, with regards to money, especially this is with regards to backing a currency. If you have a currency that looks like this with regards to, to value and so on, it's hard to predict what to do tomorrow. And so it makes investing difficult. It makes saving difficult. Maybe you have something to say about that as well. Yeah, no, I, I would suggest any commodity would, would probably be all right. Um, to, to your point, yeah, it does have a lot of swings in it. And, and you also use it. So, yeah, you can use gold in, in you know, dental work and electronics and, and things like that and, and jewelry. But in, inherently, it's, it's one of these things that beyond that is pretty useless. Um, uh, but the thing is, it's worldwide 
recognized as as being a, a currency and it's is durable and it lasts the test of time you can divide it and uh, you know there's a number of traits of gold that that make a lot of sense compared to something like oil like um i i don't mind holding a few gold coins in my sock drawer but I wouldn't carry a couple of barrel oils in my sock drawer. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or in your vehicle to go get some groceries. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and it might cost a barrel of oil with the price, the way groceries are right now. Um, at any rate. Okay. Someone asks, John here asks, I have a trading account with RBC. How difficult is it to transfer over to Bow Valley, to your bank? Uh, not hard at all. So we, we have a platform called Qtrade, which is owned by the credit union system in, in Canada. It's like a brokerage trader, probably similar to what you're using in RBC. And basically what you do is just start up an account at Qtrade uh, through us and you can transfer things over. Um, you can transfer over RSPs without triggering a tax event. Uh, you can uh, transfer over in kind which means, you know, stocks, bonds, mutual funds type thing, or you can do it with cash or both. Um, and, and it doesn't trigger a taxable event. Right. Okay. Um, Margaret, she goes, the rumor is that they will kill smaller banks first and that all will, that will be left are the big four. So what does that mean for Bow Valley Bank? And does that concern you? And maybe you could expand on that. I've heard, well, I've, I haven't really studied it much, but I've heard the same in America where, you have at least for a little while you had smaller regional banks concerned about runs and perhaps you had bigger guys like JP and Chase and so on that were licking their chops, knowing that if you can crush the smaller banks, people have no option but to conglomerate into uh, their their empires. So what do you think? Yeah, they, they didn't do any favors for the, the smaller banks in, in the U.S., that's for sure, just even with their rhetoric. Um, in, inherently, there's a couple of things to say about that. Inherently, credit unions are a lot different than the big banks. So we cannot get over our skis like the big banks. So what I mean by that is our deposits have to match our loans or investments. We, we can't do a bunch of financial gymnastics like derivatives and um, swaps and trades and um, asset back paper and all, come up with all these different ways to be. And, and there's, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, there, there are credit unions out there that do that, but we don't do that type of thing. We just basically match our deposits with our, uh, loans. So right there where leverage is where you get yourself in trouble within a financial institution. And basically what you're trying to do is squeeze every single dollar from, what you can and, and make profitability for your shareholders as a credit union we don't care we care about profit and loss but we don't care about it as much as the big banks do because our membership is our owners and so yeah we could go to our membership and say you know what we're going to charge you a hundred dollars a month for your banking fees we'd make some profit but there'd be a lot, awful lot of upset members that actually own the credit union so Right, which <laughs> might not be so good for business. <laughs> right. um, okay, with that, so then with that, like you mentioned when you were talking about how capital was the issue with Silicon Valley, uh, Credit Suisse, et cetera. Maybe you want to expand on that a little bit and what exactly happened. Like I've heard things where, um, okay, economists have said, well, the Fed in America gave uh, 
for example, Silicon Valley, basically bad information. They gave them false information. And so Silicon Valley invested in a way that it wouldn't or that rational investors wouldn't normally do. And then, of course, when the chickens came home to roost, it it bit them. It got them. I've heard other guys say, you know what, just the um, the investors themselves or the the managers themselves at Silicon Valley were just plain um, greedy to a fault that they were willing to basically compromise on reality and act like complete fools to try and get an extra dollar. So what, what do you think? What's your analysis on that? I would say it's column A and column B. There. So there's there's two ways that a, that a financial institution can go broke: liquidity and capital. If you don't have enough liquidity, that's the quickest way to go broke. Capital is is the other way that if you don't have a capital to absorb losses, you're going to go broke. Um, so what happened with Silicon Valley Bank? And, and you're absolutely right that the, the Fed in the U.S. gave them bad information that said that, oh, we're going to keep interest rates low forever. And so what they did is they took all the uh, clients' deposits and went out and ran and bought treasuries at those really low rates. And so what happens a few months later when the interest rates rise, the same thing um, like with our earlier example, it's like, what's more value put to you, Tanner? Is it the $100 treasury that pays five percent or the hundred dollar treasury that pays ten percent right right obviously so, higher stuff yeah so when the interest rates went higher all of a sudden the value of all those t-bills that they bought over the last number of years went down and so they got a bunch of losses um that's not ultimately what killed them because they, they could have basically just wrote it out and you would have gotten your principal back at the at the end of the term it's just that people caught wind of this and basically said, I want my money, I want it now. And, and so basically what they caused was a bank run. Um, so if they had enough capital, it wouldn't have been a problem to basically absorb those losses. And if they had enough liquidity, they would have been able to absorb all those people coming to get their deposits. So yeah, little A, little B. Uh, um, and, and ultimately, you're right with your second comment, they were being greedy. Because what they could have done is they could have spent a little bit of money and, and bought a swap is, is what it's called. And basically what it would have done is, is it could have protected against that interest rate rise in the financial institution. But that cost money and that would have eaten into our profit and our bonuses and things like that. So absolutely they got greedy. That was banking 101. That was rookie stuff that they, they blew themselves up with. So... Right. So then with that, um, and again, this is, of course, just speculation. If we knew the future, <laughs> I'd be rich. Um, what's your um, diagnosis on the current health of the banking industry in Canada and America, too? Uh, but let's say Canada, sure. I'd say Canada is quite sound. Um, Europe, not so much. U.S., not so much. I, I don't think we've seen the end of this. Um, we'll see. Um, if rate, they continue to raise rates, which they might do, um, and inflation stays hot and they try and get it under control, it, it's, yeah, we haven't seen the end of this because, um, I, th I think probably the next thing that will blow is the commercial banking sector in the U S. Um, and that really affects the, the smaller regional banks. And again, 
if they had enough capital, they'd be able to absorb these shocks, but they might not have enough capital. So. Right, right, right. Like a big, massive crush. Yeah. Um, here's a good question from Brandon. He says, there seems to be a lot of credit unions merging. Is Bow Valley merging with any right now? No, no, we have no interest in doing that. Um, we have different boards. We have different policies, procedures, different managements, different values, which is probably the number one thing why we wouldn't merge with any other credit unions. We're profitable. We're sustainable. We don't need to merge. Right. Um, yeah. Yep. No, for sure. Um, AB, I don't know her name or his name, asks, how can credit unions offer 100% guarantees on our account assets if credit unions' own asset values are reliant on a stable financial market? Well, that's that's to take up with the insurer. That's it's they've guaranteed it, and and it effectively, ultimately, it's it's first of all, it's the first line of defense is our statutory liquidity. Second is the Credit Union Deposit Guarantee Corporation. Third is the Alberta government, and so the Alberta government would basically have to come up with the money if if something went sideways. Now. I'm not so concerned about the province of Alberta being able to come up with something like that, but something like the province of Ontario, who's constantly running deficit positions and doesn't have any monies in the coffer, you're going to have to go to the Bank of Canada for a bailout. Right, right. And that's something different entirely. Yeah. Right. Something much more powerful. Um, Here's a good one. Okay, so suppose that the American dollar does go down, you know, really crashes or something. And all Western uh, countries' money value. Oh, sorry. Suppose that they do go down. And if all Western countries, if the money from all Western countries is based on a U.S. dollar, what would happen with our money, with our Canadian dollar? Would it collapse too? Well, thinking about this, paradoxically, the U.S. dollar will actually rise when it's collapsing. And, And that's hard to get your head around. And I could talk for hours about it. But what will happen effectively is all the money will come rushing back to the U.S. And it'll devalue all the other currencies in the world compared to the U.S. dollar. So, yes, the Canadian dollar would decline in comparison to the U.S. dollar. And, you know, that's thinking about the system with currencies. It doesn't mean that the the US dollar isn't devaluing and your purchasing power isn't going down, but the value compared to other currencies of the US dollar would go up. And so um, I think that that's always sort of been my indicator. When you start seeing gold and the US dollar going up week after week after week after week, we're pretty close to the end of this game. Right. And I've heard rumors that gold and silver will, again, it's not financial advice. It's just what I'm reading online. <laughs> Sometimes they're wrong, but I've heard rumors that gold and silver are going up. So something to perhaps research and look into and talk with a financial planner or advisor about. Um, Leaf asks, as Bow Valley, considering you're only in Alberta, who are you regulated by? And does it help us as individuals in Alberta? Yeah, no, absolutely. So we're regulated by the same person that give us our, our deposit insurance. So they have vested interest in, in keeping us solvent. It's the Credit Union Deposit Guarantee Corporation, which uh, ultimately reports to the, the Ministry of Finance, uh, Treasury and Finance in Alberta. So, Right. So just right. There's um, safeguards in place, so to say. Yes. Right. Um, so since you've done this, since you've started this initiative, 
you've seen a massive, have you seen an increase in interest and, um, what would you say? Yeah, no interest from people coming to your bank saying we like what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. We, we can't even keep up, <laughs> frankly. Um, and just a, a ton of interest, ton of people that, that are just, and, and what, what gold really is, you know, it's just one word and, and, but it's, it's really what it stands for. And, and it's, a lack of confidence in the system is, is basically what it is. And so when, when people hear that there's actually a financial institution that's trying to put some stability in place to, to basically shore up confidence, uh, people are going to come running. So we've, we've seen a massive increase in, in people coming to our organizations to the point where we just can't keep up. But um, we're, we're looking to expand to be able to sort of cater to it because we recognize there's a need. Um, and, you know, altruistically, as mentioned before, I, I would love to see credit unions across Canada to do this because I think it's one of the few solutions we have to try and fix the financial system. Right. Um, here's a good question from Linda. She says, what questions should we ask a banking institution that we're thinking of moving to, to ensure privacy, safety of money, um, stability of the bank, et cetera. If you were moving to a new bank, what would you ask them? Sure. Yeah. Like anecdotally, I, I start with, uh, the questions that are sort of top of mind in the last uh, couple of years, you know, what, what did you do during COVID? Did you force people to wear masks and get vaccinated? Uh, what did you do during the trucker convoy? Um, you know, how, how, what, what do you know about your third party providers and who, who are your partners and things like that? I, I think these are just, you know, they're not aggressive questions, but the thing is, I think those type of questions really answer a lot. And somebody on the front line in most organizations would go, I don't know, you know, you know, <laughs> they, they'd be able to tell you that if they wore a mask or not, but the thing is it's, but the thing is I, I wouldn't quit until you get the answers that, that you actually want and you know i i say this this is my my saying that i have all the time is like people spend more time researching a tv than they do their financial institution you know and what's a tv three four hundred dollars but and and yet they have thousands hundreds of thousands of dollars tied up in their financial institution and they haven't done a ton of research behind them so. right right um here's one from paul he says, why can't Alberta create a silver or gold currency? Good question, Paul. <laughs> I agree. What do you think? Well, you know, interestingly enough, um, uh, two or three weeks before uh, the premier election of Daniel Smith, she came to our board planning session um, and then talked to our board. And we... She, she's in this camp of, of basically trying to uh, figure out this, this financial Rubik's Cube and, and trying to fix the system. So I would ab absolutely be a proponent of, of backing Alberta Credit Unions and, and ATB with uh, precious metals. And, I, and, and as mentioned before, I think it, capital will just come running. Right. Oh, I agree. Like, again, this is, well, it sounds idealistic at the moment, but I would, if, if Alberta became independent, um, oh, I absolutely think you could back it with that currency with gold. All you'd have to do, of course, is simply one day switch to, it sounds simply, and actually, I mean, 
you know, all of the bureaucratic stuff aside, it actually is simple enough to switch, say, from a Canadian dollar to an Alberta dollar. Even if you just switched at a one to one um, ratio for one Canadian dollar for one Alberta dollar. And as you were doing that, as you were switching, the, you know, you'd have the, the bank start buying gold until the banks themselves could um, back the Alberta dollars in their banks at the reserve ratio. It's not, it's not, this is more complicated than it needs to be. But at any rate, I think you could do it. Um, it just takes some political will, some political willpower. At any rate, it's a good question. Um, Rosanna says, can you explain open banking? Sure, yeah. Um, full disclosure, I do not like open banking at all. Um, so the, the simplest thing that I can say about that is if, if you've ever used like an accounting program or like a budgeting app or something like that, usually what it does is ask you one of the first questions is, hey, can I go grab your information from your bank? And what they use right now is a technology called screen scraping, but it doesn't work very well. It sort of just, it, it might figure out that something's a date and something else is a dollar and it's not, not really working all that well. With open banking, it would have laser precision on what exactly is in your bank account. Um, the biggest problem that I have with open banking is the feds are actually wanting to be the hub for where all that information gets traveled through. And so when you switch on something at TD that says, oh yeah, go out and grab uh, my information from TD, it doesn't just stop at TD. It goes to every single financial institution that's attached to open banking and grabs the information and siphons it through the hub that the government has. So effectively, the government would have a complete financial picture of you. Um, we're not building the infrastructure. We've been um, given the okay that we don't need to opt into open banking. And so we're not building it. And so there might be something that comes knocking at our door, but it won't get anywhere because the thing is we don't even have a path for it to get your information. Um, we don't like the idea of, of um, that much power and control and financial information floating around out there. So, Right. We'll just do uh, one or two more questions. All the questions have been excellent tonight. I've been, I've been so excited and so happy to read all of them. Um, Leah asks, is there, a, or what's the difference between, for example, ATB being an Alberta bank and your, your bank, Bow Valley? Uh, so they're a uh, crown corporation. So um, I, I don't love that because they, they basically are, are legislated to do some of the political will that, that happens there. But aside from that, so they're, they're moving to the same regulator that we are, the Credit and Deposit Guarantee Corporation. But what was really interesting under the trucker convoy is, you know, I think they pushed back to some degree and said, oh, well, you know, we don't fall under these rules. We're, we're regulated by the province. And then somebody in Ottawa stepped in and said, no, you're not. You are regulated by OSFI. And they snapped into position so quickly, it, it made my head spin um, and, and started locking up people's accounts um, during the, the Freedom Convoy. So they, that could change. And, and again, it goes back to political will. 
Um, but but it is a pretty powerful tool for Alberta if if we're able to sort of harness it properly. Um, right now, I think they're under the control of the feds. Right, right. Last one for tonight. It's a good one to end with. Debbie asks, okay, so there's all of this um, bureaucratic nonsense that's occurring and happening and, and, and bureaucrats are trying to capture more power. So what can we do today to stop all of this from happening? The bureaucratic nonsense? Well, well sure. And, 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 you know, this transition or try to transition to central bank currency, digital banking, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there's a number of problems in, in the world today. And, and I, I think finance is a big one, but, you know, there's, there's education, there's health care, there's um, the police service, there's the justice service, you name it. There's a number of things that we got problems. So being just a banker and an accountant focusing on mostly the financial world for a better part of my adult life, I think there is a big solution within finance. And, and if you cut off the currency printing, you cut off a lot of this nonsense that happens at, at the banking level. All of a sudden, they have to start being efficient. All of a sudden, they can't give to programs that don't have a return on investment. All of a sudden, they have to be really focused on what they're doing. Um, you start getting people in political positions that actually want to be there rather than just trying to jockey for power. Um, I think I think it causes a lot of solutions to happen as a result of being not being able to print money. Right. Currency. Yes. Oh, I would completely agree. And I think we do exactly what we're doing right now, which is even this. There are so many people watching. It's, it's so encouraging because, um, for example, a politician would would be over the moon to have numbers like this talking about something which historically has been treated um, as something which is mundane. And no one before all of this um, nonsense became more and more public was talking about, for example, central banking or what's the state of our currency or how does the currency system work? How does the money printing system work? And what are the consequences of printing uncontrollably? How is our government spending, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that the information which was provided by yourself and the uh, community of individuals that came out at least online here to listen to you tonight, provides invaluable information that they can then uh, approach their MLA, their MP and say, I learned this and this and this from a reputable individual who knows what he's talking about with regards to money and banking. Why is something opposite the current state of what we have right now? And what are you going to do about it? And so I think that um, meetings and webinars like these are encouraging. I think they're exciting. I think it details just how um, powerful this movement is to bring back sound monetary policy, sound banking, and actually a coherence and a submission to reality itself. And so with that, Brett, I want to thank you for joining us this evening. I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I see the comments are all excellent. The praise is high for you. And um, if you have any more questions, Brett's at, Bo again, Bow Valley Credit Union. As far as I know, they're, uh, they're open every day of the, of the working week. And I know they're busy, of course. And so, um, you know, you might have, might have to work to reach them, but they can reach you. Is it on email? Just your website, bowvalleycreditunion.com, is it? Oh, uh, yeah. You can either go to our website or you can even go to goldbacked at bowvalleycu.com. I, I read all the emails that I get. I, I may take me a bit of time to try and get caught up in things like that, but I will get back to you and uh, just 
thanks, Tanner. Really appreciate it. Um, it, it was a lot of fun. It, it's much better to have a conversation about these things and, and actually answer some really critical questions because there was a lot of good ones out there and, and we should be asking questions. Uh, it's, it's an important time. We've got an election coming up. We should be asking these questions of these politicians as well and, and seeing where they lie because uh, this is a pretty critical election in my mind and, and we have to get it right. So, Yes. Oh, I completely agree. Give them all the pressure that, that we're able. And again, this will be, this webinar will be available as far as I know uh, for as long as, as the webpage for APP is up. It's on my page too. Um, so you'll be able to rewatch it, look at all the information, um, the websites and so on are at the bottom of your screen. And with that, I want to wish everyone here uh, just a good night and, you know, um, <laughs> hope the warm comes. So thank you for joining us. Um, have a good night. Thanks all. Thanks.